I began to wonder what it might feel like for God to be present in our suffering. And the answer has come and continues to come in the form of his body, of you all and your presence with us and your care for us. And so from the bottom of our hearts, thank you, we love you, and we continue to need you and continue to thank God for his providence in calling us to you all and you all to us. And I have to tell you that I've wrestled deeply over this sermon as I've prepared for it. The passage we'll read this morning is not a theoretical one for me, nor is it for any of us. I've wrestled over this passage because it deals with the theme of suffering in light of the hope of glory a theme that each of us will have to reckon with in this life, and and one that our church particularly has been presented with in large measure. But in the months of particular and acute suffering that, that our family has gone through, I have found the need to ask God daily for enough faith to believe these truths. And I've also found a God who is gracious enough to give it each day. And so this morning, we're going to lean into this theme together, not for the sake of self-pity or to focus on the suffering itself, but in order to fix our eyes on the glory that renders it not worthy of comparison. And so may God give us the faith to believe it. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. It's also found in page 6 of your bulletin. And as you're turning there, it's important to remember that in Romans 8, um, Paul is discussing a life that is characterized by the grace of the Spirit. And in the first 17 verses, he contrasts a life that is characterized, a life that is lived according to the flesh, and a life that is lived according to the Spirit. And for Paul, those two words, flesh and spirit, represent two ages, two modes of existence. Two worlds. On the one hand, you have the age that is characterized by the flesh, by creaturely weakness. And on the other hand, you have the age that is characterized by the spirit, the age of the new creation that has been ushered in by the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so for a few moments this morning, by the inspired words of God through the Apostle Paul, we stand in the overlap of those two ages and consider the weight of glory that we now taste in part and that we'll one day experience in glorified and redeemed bodies. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Gracious Father, would you help us this morning to hear your words? And by the illumination of your Spirit, would you increase our hope for the glory we await at the return of Christ and the redemption of our bodies? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is not among the requirements for membership in the PCA, but it is highly encouraged. Or maybe I'm just hoping that so many of you are like me and and share my nerdy passion for fantasy novels that give us pictures of other worlds. Either way, I expect that some of you have read J.R.R. Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings. Others of you, no doubt, have spent countless hours watching the extended editions of the films, but if you haven't read the text, or if it's been a while, I'd like to highlight one particular scene that the films just can't capture, I think, the way that the words of Tolkien himself originally did. Frodo and Sam, two hobbits, have journeyed for some time toward the land of Mordor in order to destroy the ring of power in the fires from which it was forged. And at this particular point in the story, they now have to journey through the land of Mordor or the land of shadow as it's described in the book. It's an appropriate title for even the land itself bears a particular oppressive darkness that maybe the films do portray. And throughout their journey, Frodo and Sam find themselves in the shadow of the eye of the enemy. So it's a dire and dark journey. And, And at this point in the story, these courageous hobbits have reached its darkest point. They are overwhelmed. They're exhausted. And so finding a protected place to rest, they eat a meager meal and they attempt sleep. And Sam Gamgee, Frodo's faithful companion, takes the night watch on this occasion. And as he peeks out over a little crack in in the protected place where they are sleeping, and he peers out over the mountain, and he watches a white star twinkle for a little while. And Tolkien writes that, The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. 
Sam experienced in that moment, the same reality that the Apostle Paul is describing in in Romans 8, verses 18 and following. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul has reckoned with the sufferings that characterize this present age. He's even promised them for those who are united to Christ. He's reckoned with such suffering and darkness in the land of shadow. But he's done so in light, in view of the light and high beauty that is forever beyond its reach in the age to come. And so in these brief moments of reflection on God's word this morning, we will come to see that for the Christian... The shadow of the suffering of this age is but a small and passing thing, for there is unmeasured glory awaiting us in the next. And we'll see that Paul has really reckoned with these truths in light of three big realities, and the first one is this. We are promised a deliverance from futility and decay. Paul tells us that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for our full redemption at the return of Christ. And maybe a natural question here is, why should the rest of creation be so concerned with our deliverance? Why should the fields and the trees and the thousands of animal species and the whole created order be concerned with the redemption that is to be ours? Paul tells us, because the whole creation was subjected to futility and decay. It's almost like a commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Paul reminds us that the creation was subjected to futility because of the curse of the fall when God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. We might be tempted to hear something like that and lament the fact that it seems like this time of year we are mowing our lawns every other day, and that's futility. I I felt like that when we lived in Florida. I couldn't keep my tiny patch of grass from growing. But that's not futility. For God designed creation to grow. Or maybe you're tempted to think of even the cyclical nature of seasons. Because let's face it, in just a few months, we're going to be raking leaves again, aren't we? But that's not futility either. For God ordained seasons and days and years at creation No, the kind of futility that's described here is the same constant refrain of Ecclesiastes when the author pins the words vanity, vanity. It is vanity that what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. It's vanity when a man toils and accumulates but has no son or brother to share it with. It's vanity that in the place of justice there is wickedness. In other words, there's something broken about this world. The natural order of things is not fully the way it should be, and creation feels it. For the creation has been subjected to futility. It's the kind of futility that's characterized by corruption, by decay, as Paul tells us in verse 21. The the process of every created thing breaking down. It's the inability of creation to attain the ends for which it was made. And so creation groans. And yet, it groans in hope. 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom that is associated with the glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan in this hope. We eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, our promised deliverance from futility, the day when our bodies will no longer be subject to decay because they will be made like the resurrected, glorified body of our Savior. The day when we, as God's adopted sons and daughters, will no longer be subject to the suffering that characterizes this age. The day when we will reach a land beyond the land of shadow. The prophets of old spoke about this day. In fact, Isaiah 65, which was read to us earlier, gives a picture of the freedom from futility that characterizes the age to come. Isaiah speaks of an infant dying a hundred years old and an old man filling out his days and a wolf grazing with a lamb. Why does Isaiah use these images? Because it's futility. It's futility that an infant should die young. And it's futility that an old man should not fill out his days. It's not the way things were designed to be. And it's the kind of futility that compels our groaning and creation's groaning to be free. But the promise is this. That freedom is coming. That freedom is coming. And so what is our response? Our response is hope. In this hope, we were saved. The hope of deliverance, the promise of glory, of redeemed and glorified bodies at the return of Christ. And it's a hope that produces steadfast endurance. The word here translated patience in many of your Bibles is an interesting one. For the ancient Greeks, it was a subset of one of their four prominent virtues of courage. It was a a personal bravery derived from within oneself. And in Stoic thought, it meant a schooling of the will, a training of your will to attain indifference. And this, for the Stoics, yielded the fortitude to endure suffering. In the words of one of the great philosophical works of our time, we could translate this kind of impulse to Stoicism to conceal, don't feel. Any Frozen fans out there? you have children. And and in Dallas, we're pretty good at this, aren't we? I mean, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and calling it fortitude, at suppressing our emotions and masking them with the concealer of the good life. And no matter how much the Disney movies try to compel us to express our feelings, we all know deep down there are certain things that we just need to keep to ourselves. But that's not the way the Bible uses this word. No, this steadfast endurance, this patience is not a personal bravery nor a stoic indifference, but a steadfastness of character that can only come from clinging to the faithfulness of God by which he has promised to deliver us from futility and decay and which, by the way, is characterized by a corporate groaning. We groan together, and we hope together, because we're promised a deliverance from futility and decay. 
And since Paul considers this reality to be true, he reckons our subjection to suffering and futility and decay not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. But there's a second reality by which Paul reckons this to be true, and that's this. We have a present down payment in our weakness. A present down payment in our weakness. In verse 23, Paul claims that we ourselves, the adopted sons and daughters of God, have the first fruits of the Spirit even during this age in which we groan. The Holy Spirit is the first installment in the redemption that we've discussed. In fact, it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit as the down payment of our full redemption that we groan. We've tasted of the powers of the age to come, and we groan for it in hope. It's fitting that we should discuss this aspect of the Spirit's ministry in our lives on Pentecost Sunday, that day set aside on the liturgical calendar to celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It marked a new beginning, a new era in redemptive history. The Spirit joins inseparably the two ages that we're discussing here today. The age, on the one hand, that's characterized by futility and decay, and the age to come that's characterized by unmeasured glory. And the Spirit allows us to stand at the precipice between this age and that age and groan for it with the eyes of faith and hope. Like the hopeful groan of a mother who has for months felt the gentle kicks of her baby and now labors to give birth, we groan because we've already tasted of the glory of that world. And the counterintuitive nature of the gospel teaches us that even in our weakness, and especially in our weakness, we taste it all the more, for the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Though we are too weak to even know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us according to the will of God with groanings too deep for words. What's going on there? What are these groanings that are too deep for words? Can I just tell you? I don't know. That's an okay answer, especially when you're on the floor at Presbytery and you don't know the answer to the question being asked. It's better than making one up. But the reality is we don't know what these inexpressible groanings consist of. They are an imperceptible intercession from the Spirit to the Father on our behalf. We're not talking about some private prayer language. We're not talking about speaking in tongues. We're talking about a ministry of the Spirit on our behalf when we are too weak to even know what to pray for. One commentator explains it like this. The children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the courts of heaven and the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. So that even in the weakness we experience in this age, we can be sure that we already partake of the next. Even in the land of shadow, our hearts are filled with hope because of the present ministry of the Spirit in our lives as a foretaste of what's to come. Theologians call this the already not yet. It's a kind of tension, and it's a tension that characterizes the life of every Christian. Last fall, I had the privilege to officiate the wedding ceremony of a former intern of mine in Florida, and 
also to walk with this couple through premarital counseling. And for many months of their engagement, they were living in two states while the bride-to-be finished nursing school. And one of the things that becomes painfully obvious during the period of engagement, and especially when the two are living states apart, is the tension of the already not yet. I mean, if you've been through that period of life, you know what I'm talking about. Promises have already been made, and they have even been sealed with a ring, and plans begin to come together. Two lives begin to become one. There are many things that are already taking place with regard to the life that the two will share together, but there are many realities that are not yet fully realized. And so the period of engagement between man and woman, becomes, uh, uh, comes to represent this period of tension. It's a tension that can expose our weaknesses, and it should. For they teach us to rely on one another and to long for the glorious marriage to come. And isn't that what Paul is telling Christians about our own weaknesses here? So that when, not if, but when, we begin to feel like our weaknesses only highlight for us our inabilities and our insecurities, we can rejoice. For there's a glorious marriage to come. And we can remember that the Spirit of God Himself helps us in our weakness, tethering us to the realities of that world to come and interceding for us even now. And so Paul has reckoned that the sufferings of this present time and even our own weaknesses actually serve to teach us that the glory to come far outshines the suffering of this present age because we have a present down payment in our weakness. And finally, we have a perfect destination because of our forerunner. In some of the most familiar verses of Paul's writings, we find light and high beauty beyond the land of shadow. He says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And though Paul has already promised suffering for those who are united to Christ, and though he has pointed out that this present age is characterized by futility and weakness and decay, he can say with confidence that all things work together for good for those who are called by God. How can that be? How can that be? Those realities seem so incompatible. Apart from a faith that allows us to see beyond the land of shadow, this verse is either a sick joke at worst, or it's a trite comfort at best. And we've all heard it used that way, haven't we? Something better will come out of this, we're told, when we lose a job. Whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger, right? We're told during a period of weakness or suffering. But these are platitudes and predictions that may or may not come true in this land. And Paul's sights are not set fully or finally on the good that we may or may not see this side of glory. No, Paul's sights, like Sam Gamgee's, are set much higher. How do we know? 
Because in the following verses, Paul paints not a myopic scene, but a panorama. And he makes first strokes back before the beginning in the eternal counsel of God, when those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And this foreknowledge, by the way, does not suggest that God merely looked through time and chose those who would choose him. No, he foreknew the people of his covenant. He chose us to be his special people. He predestined us, apart from any merit in ourselves, to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then he accomplished it through the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Christ when the eternal counsel of God broke into this world and Christ took on flesh and became like us in order to lay aside that flesh and take it up again in the resurrection that we might become like him. And that's where Paul locates our hope. On the coming day of our glorification, when we are conformed to the image of Christ, our forerunner, that is our perfect destination. And as we've already seen in this passage, that glorification does not mean that we are transformed into angels with harps floating around in another dimension. It means the reuniting of soul and body whereby both will partake together in the enjoyment of the triune God for all eternity. That's our perfect destination. Bodily resurrection in the age to come. Just this week, some three months after Henry's death, The permanent headstone which marks his grave was installed. And it's been for us another one of these milestones in the process of grieving Henry's death. And prior to this week, if you had gone to his grave, you would have seen a small temporary plaque there with his name and the dates of his birth and death. But the stone that is there now, that now marks his grave, is permanent. And that's perhaps why we had such difficulty when we were consulting with the cemetery staff about what it should say. How, how could we as Henry's parents come up with some final words on Henry's life to mark this place, the last physical space that his body will occupy until the resurrection? I mean, that, that's what a gravesite is, you know. It's a, it's a physical space to remember those we've lost and to be confronted in an acute way with the realities of their death and their life, it can almost seem like a final word. But here's what I know. Because of this promise of our perfect destination, I know that on the day that Christ returns, He will call that little body out of the grave and He will reunite body and soul, transforming them into His own image And the final word on Henry's life will not be what's written on that stone, but it will be everlasting glory. And whatever bits of stone are left on that day will not serve to remind us of Henry's death, but they will remind us of Christ's victory over the grave. And we will, together with all the saints, enjoy unmeasured glory in the age to come as we worship at the throne of the risen King. 
And this glory is as sure for God's people as their own calling and their own justification. It is coming. That's why Paul uses the past tense of glorified here. It's sure in Christ. It is the final word. It is our perfect destination so that in the end, what Paul has just done here is set up two great pillars, two great monuments for us to consider along our present pilgrimage. One in eternity past when God chose us to be his own. And one in the glorious age to come when the fullness of redemption in Christ will be realized and we will be made like him. And it's only when we step back and view the panoramic scope of God's redemptive purpose that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And yet so often we can't see beyond the land of shadow. When Frodo and Sam are near the end of their journey to Mount Doom, Sam attempts to steal Frodo's heart by reminding him of better days. He asks him to recall the warmth of good food and some of the wondrous things they'd seen together. And Frodo, overcome by the dark power of the ring, responds, I know such things happened, but I cannot see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon and star are left to me. I am naked in the dark. In the last three months, I've felt that way more often than not. And I think we've all felt that way, if we're honest. Though there is light and high beauty beyond us, we can't see it. All we can see at times is the darkness. And so, what is the answer? The answer is hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with steadfast endurance. We cling to the faithfulness of God and the surety of his promise to deliver us. We glory in our weaknesses, knowing that even in it, the spirit tethers us to the coming glory. And we consider our great forerunner who entered into this land of shadow becoming like us that we might become like him. We consider him and we consider the glory to be revealed when he returns. We now stand at the edge of the dawn of that world. And though we can't see it, we wait for it with hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we bow before you this morning as partakers in your Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, our forerunner. Would you give us strength to believe that even in our weakness, your gospel calls us to groan for the world to come so that we might forever enjoy the freedom of the glory of the children of God. May we comprehend with all the saints what is the length and height and depth of your love which surpasses knowledge. And as we come to your table, even now, would you meet us there and dine with us, giving us a foretaste of the glorious marriage supper we will one day enjoy with you 
in glorified and redeemed bodies. We humbly ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.